Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 7 from God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew, with John and Elizabeth Sherl. Chapter 7, Behind the Iron Curtain. Coming back to Witte after two years in England was like living through one of those experiences that has happened before. Just as when I returned from Indonesia, everything in the village that hot morning in July 1955 was so preciously as it had been when I left it that at first I had the uncomfortable feeling that no time had elapsed at all. Jitji was out in the garden hanging up clothes when I stepped across the little bridge onto our plot of land. Here, though, there was a difference. A little boy was playing on the front stoop, Jitley's son. Hi, I called around him. Anybody home? It's Andy. And once again, everyone suddenly appeared. There was, there were shouts and hugs, the catching up, the attack on the problems of logistics, who would sleep where, when Uncle Andrew was home. The next several days were spent visiting friends. I went to see Mr. Ringers at the factory. I visited Mrs. Mickle, who threw her hands into the air with astonishment at my English, and with Kess's family, I called on the Wistras, where I discovered, to my surprise, that they were about to move to Amsterdam. They had done well in their flour export business and wanted to be closer to the big shipping offices. Last of all, I went down to Ermelo to visit my brother Ben and his wife. Very casually, I asked him if he had heard anything about Thiele. Yes, he said, just as casually. I read last year that she'd been married, a banker, I believe, and because there seemed nothing more to say, neither of us said anything at all. The train for Warsaw left Amsterdam July 15, 1955. I was astonished at the number of students who had been attracted by the festival. Hundreds of young men and women milled about the station. For the first time, I began to believe the extravagant figures I had read in the magazine. My suitcase was heavy. It In it were just a few clothes, a change of linen, and some extra socks. Most of the bag was filled with small 31-page booklets entitled The Way of Salvation. If the communists had attracted me to their country with literature, I was going to carry in literature of my own. Karl Marx had said, Give me 26 lead soldiers, and I will conquer the world. Meaning, of course, the 26 letters of the alphabet. Well, this game could be played both ways. I was going to Poland with editions of this powerful little book in every European language. And so, with the suitcase almost tearing away from its handle, and my new corduroy pants squeaking at every step, I climbed aboard the train. A few hours later, I was standing in Warsaw's central station, waiting for my hotel assignment. I felt very alone. I knew not a single person in all of Poland, nor a single word of the language. From all over the world, thousands upon thousands of young people were co- converging on Warsaw 
for purposes opposite my own. As we waited, I found myself praying, and I wondered if mine were the only prayers offered in this enthusiastic, laughing, confident throng. My hotel turned out to be a school building that had been converted into a dormitory, especially for this occasion. I checked in and was assigned to a mathematics classroom that held 30 beds. As soon as possible, I left the hotel and went out into the Warsaw streets, wondering what I was supposed to do next. Rather aimlessly, I boarded a public bus, and suddenly, as we wove our way through traffic, I knew what I was supposed to do. I had learned a little German during the occupation, and I knew that there was a large German-speaking minority in Poland. So, taking a deep breath, I said aloud in German, I am a Christian from Holland. Everyone near me stopped talking. I felt horribly foolish. I want to meet some Polish Christians. Can anyone help me? Silence. But then, as she rose to leave the bus, a fat woman pressed her face near mine and whispered an address in German. Then she said the words, Bible shop. My pulse raced. A Bible shop? In a communist country? I found the address, and sure enough, there it was. A Bible shop plain as day. The windows were was the window was filled with Bibles, red letter editions, foreign translations, pocket testaments, but the shop was barred with a heavy grill, and the door was padlocked. There was a notice pasted on the door, which I carefully copied word for word and took back to the hotel. My group leader smiled. It's a notice of vacation, he said. Closed for holidays. Will open again July 21st. So I had to wait. Our routine for the three weeks was established early. We were supposed to go on the official sightseeing tour in the morning and to listen to speeches in the afternoon and evening. I followed the routine for a few days. It was clear that we were being shown a well-scrubbed face of Warsaw, new schools, thriving factories, high-rise apartments, overflowing shops. It was all very impressive, but I wondered what I would see if I managed to get off by myself alone. One morning, I decided to try just that. I rose early, and before the rest of my group came down for breakfast, was out of the building. What a day it was! Up and down the broad avenues of Warsaw, I walked, saddened by the signs of war violence everywhere. A whole blocks were bombed out, blocks the sightseeing tours had avoided. Slum areas abounded, meat shops with long queues, men and women with rags for clothes. One scene in particular stands out in my memory. There was a bombed-out section of town in which families lived like rabbits in a warren. These people had dug their way into the basements and were making their homes in them. I saw a little girl playing barefoot in the dust and debris. I had a Polish booklet with me, which I handed to her, along with a small banknote. She looked at me in surprise and ran up the mound of rubble. In a moment, a woman's head appeared, sticking up out of the ground. She stumbled forward holding the track and the bill. 
Behind her came a man. They were filthy, and they were both drunk. I tried speaking to them in German and in English and even in Dutch, but they just looked at me blankly. I told them in pantomime to read the booklet, but from the way they held it I realized at last they could not read. They simply kept shaking their heads, and at last, with a smile and a shake of my own, I left them. Sunday came. This was a big day on the agenda. We were to take part in a demonstration at the stadium. Instead, I went to church. Newspapers in Holland had carried so many stories about the house arrest of Polish church leaders and the closing of seminaries that I had had the impression that all religion in Poland had gone underground. Obviously, this was not so. The Bible shop was apparently still operating. I had passed Catholic churches with the doors wide open. Were there, I wondered, Protestant churches still functioning too? I didn't want to ask at the school for directions to a church since I was supposed to be at the rally, so I slipped out and found a taxicab. Good day, I said in Polish. The driver smiled back and rattled off a long, happy sentence. But good day was all the Polish I had learned. And when I asked him in German to take me to a church, his face fell. I tried English, and he looked blanker still. I folded my hands as in prayer, then opened them as if reading. Next, I crossed myself and shook my head. No, not a Catholic service. Again, I pantomimed, reading the Bible. The driver was smiling again. He started across town, and sure enough, he had understood. We stopped at a red brick building that boasted two spires. Ten minutes later, I was seated at a Reformed church service behind the Iron Curtain. I was surprised at the size of the congregation. The church was about three-quarters full. I was surprised, too, at the number of young people. The singing was enthusiastic. The sermon, apparently scripture-centered, as the preacher was constantly referring to his Bible. When the service was over, I waited in the rear of the sanctuary to see if I could find someone, or find anyone who spoke a language I spoke. My clothes must have marked me as a foreigner, for before long I heard the word, Welcome! I turned and found myself looking into the face of the pastor. Could you wait a moment, he said in English. I should like to speak with you, and I with him. After most of the congregation had left, the pastor and a handful of young people volunteered to answer my questions. Yes, they worshipped openly and with considerable freedom, as long as they stayed clear of political subjects. Yes, there were members of the church who were also members of the Communist Party. Well, the regime had done so much for the people that one just cl closed an eye to the rest. It is a compromise, yes, said the pastor with a shrug of his shoulders. But what can we do? What church do you belong to at home? One of the young men asked in excellent English. Baptist, would you like to go to a Baptist service? Very much indeed. He got a out pencil and paper and wrote down an address for me. There's a service tonight, he said, and that evening, after learning from the rest of the Dutch delegation how boring the day's endless speeches had been, I set out by taxi once again 
this time armed with a specific address. The service was already in progress when I arrived. There was a smaller turnout here. The people were less well-dressed, and there were almost no teenagers. But an interesting thing happened. Word was passed to the minister that a foreigner was in the congregation, and I was immediately asked to come up on the platform and speak to them. I was astonished. Did they have this amount of freedom? In there, is there anyone here who speaks German or English? I asked, not realizing that I had discovered a technique I would use often in the future. It happened <clears throat> that there was a woman in the congregation that night who spoke German. Through her, I preached my first sermon behind the Iron Curtain. It was short and insignificant, except for one inescapable fact. Here I was, a Christian from the other side of the Iron Curtain, standing up and preaching the gospel in a communist country. At the end of my little talk, the pastor said the most interesting thing of all. We want to thank you, he said, for being here. Even if you had not said a word, just seeing you would have meant so much. We feel at times as if we are all alone in our struggle. That night, lying on my cot in the mathematics classroom, I got to thinking about how different these two churches had been. One, apparently, was following the route of cooperation with the government. It attracted larger crowds. It was acceptable to young people. The other, I felt, was walking a lonelier path. When I asked if party members attended their services, the answer was, not that we know about. I was learning so much so fast that it was difficult to simulate it all. I had been in Poland nearly a week. At last, it was July 21st, the day the Bible shop reopened. I left the hotel early and walked through the almost empty avenues until I got to the address on the New World Street. Just before 9 o'clock, a man hurried down the street, stopped in front of the Bible shop, bent over, and inserted a key in the lock. Good morning, I said in Polish. The man stood up and looked at me. Good morning, he said, a trifle disdainly. Do you speak either English or German? I asked in English. English. He looked up, at, up the street. Come in. The proprietor switched on lights and began race, raising shades. While he worked, I introduced myself. The proprietor grant, grunted. Then it was his turn. He showed me his shop, his many editions of the Bible, the wide range of prices available, and all the while he was eliciting fragments of information from me, trying to establish just who I really was. Why are you in Poland? he asked suddenly. If one member suffers, all suffer together, I quoted from 1 Corinthians. The proprietor looked at me steadily. We have not been talking about suffering, he said. On the contrary, I have been telling you how free we are to publish and distribute Bibles. And with that, he started to tell a story that would illustrate, he said, how well Christians get got along with the regime. Even Stalin, before his recent death, had smiled on the work of the Bible shop. One day, he said, two officials came into the shop and handed him a written order. To celebrate Stalin's birthday, every shop was to 
display his picture in its window, surrounded by a selection of its choicest wares. Of course, the proprietor said, I was eager to cooperate. I went shopping that very day and found just what I wanted, a very large colored picture of Stalin, arms folded, looking downward with an affectionate smile on his lips. I placed the picture in my window. Then I chose my most expensive Bible and opened it to some words of Christ written in red, just below the approving eyes of Stalin. Everyone seemed to like my display, for soon a crowd gathered, and every face was smiling. The people's police arrived. Take that down, they ordered. Oh no, sir, I said. I could not do that, for here are my orders from the government in black and white. I was laughing, but the proprietor was not. There was not even a twinkle in his eye. It was my first encounter with the dry double in entry that played such a part in the life of the Christian community behind the Iron Curtain. Hastily, I arranged my features to match the sober expression of his own. As we talked, several customers came in. I was interested to see how busy the little shop was. When we were alone again, I asked the proprietor if there were Bible stores in other communist countries. Some yes, some no, he said. He began dusting the shelves. I understand that in Russia, Bibles are very scarce indeed. In fact, they tell me fortunes are being made there. A man smuggles ten Bibles into Russia and sells them for enough to buy a motorcycle. He drives the motorcycle back into Poland or Yugoslavia or East Germany and sells it for a fat profit with which he buys more Bibles. That's just a hearsay, of course. All that morning I visited with the Bible shop owner, and when it came time to say goodbye, I did it regretfully. Walking back to the school, I tried to make sense of the visit. Here was a store selling Bibles openly to anyone who wanted one. Hardly an example of the religious persecution we had so often heard about in Holland, and yet my friend was a circumspect in his was as circumspect in his talk as if he were carrying on an illegal trade. There was an uneasiness, a tension in the air that told me all was not as it seemed. As yet, I had not attempted the principal thing I had come to do. I wanted to hand out my twenty-six lead soldiers openly on the street to see what would happen. So for several days, running, I stood on corners. I went to the marketplace, bright with fresh summer vegetables. I rode the trams, and everywhere I handed out my booklets. I had never seen trams as crowded as these. There were riders on the platforms, on the couplings, on the hubs. I remember once squeezing onto a rear platform, holding my tracks over my head so they would not be crushed. A peasant woman near me looked up at the pamphlets and crossed herself. Ja, ja, she said in German. This is what we need in Poland. This, that was all. But I knew that we had had really met. She was, she the Catholic from East, Eastern Europe. I, the Protestant from the West, there on the crowded tramway platform we had met as Christians. As the day passed and no evil consequences followed 
the distribution of my booklets in public for all to see, I began to feel exhilarated about the possibilities in this unexpected mission field, and then one day I discovered how deep my own defeatist attitudes still, still ran. I believed that I had passed out Christian literature in every conceivable setting, but one morning, in the daily quiet time that I had observed ever since London days, I thought about the military barracks just up the street from the school. Not only had it never occurred to me to pass out booklets to the soldiers there, but the very sight of their uniforms made me quicken my steps in the other direction. How blind could I could you get? I of all people ought to have known that the uniform doesn't make the man. The day before the festival ended, I walked up to the group of six red soldiers standing guard and handed each of them a booklet. The men glanced at the booklets, at me, then at each other. I told them I was Dutch and found that one of them spoke German. It must make you very bitter, the American occupation, one of them said. The what? The occupation of Holland by the American Air Force. I was in the midst of trying to explain that we were not an occupied country when soldiers when the soldiers all suddenly came to attention, up walked an officer, barking orders in Polish as he came. Six soldiers wheeled smartly and marched away double time, but I noticed that they carried their booklets with them. What was it you gave these men, said the officer in German. This, sir, I handed him one of the little books. He looked at it carefully. Two hours later, it was I who broke away. We were scheduled to leave the next day, and I had a dozen travel forms to fill out. As we parted, the officer, a Russian Orthodox by birth, wished me Godspeed and a safe journey. The next morning was our last in Warsaw. I was up even earlier than usual and out on the street at sunup. I found a bench on one of the broad avenues, wiped off the dew, and sat down with my pocket testament on my knee. I had a special purpose in coming out so early. I wanted to pray for each person I had encountered on my trip. For a long time that morning, I pictured the places and the people I had seen. On, these, on three Sundays, I had visited Presbyterian, Baptist, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, Reformed, and Methodist churches. Five times I had been asked to speak during the service, I had visited a Bible shop, talked with soldiers and an officer, with people on street corners and on trolley cars. I prayed for each one, and as I sat praying, I heard the music. It was coming toward me, down the avenue, material, smart, with a sound of voices singing, and then I saw it, the perfect climax to the visit, the parade of triumph that ended the festival. This was the other side of the picture. For over against the one little Bible shop and the occasional Christian I had met was the mammoth counterfeit, uh, counterfeit, the tremendous strength of the regime. Here they came now, the young socialists, marching down the avenue. Not for a moment did I believe they were there under uh, coercion. 
They marched because they believed. They marched, ate abreast, healthy, vital, clean-cut. They marched singing, and their voices were like shouts. On and on they came for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, rank after rank of young men and young women. The effect was overwhelming. These were the evangelists of the twentieth century. These were the people who went about shouting their good news, and part of the news was that the old shackles and superstitions of religion, the old inhibiting ideas about God, no longer held. Man was his own master. The future was his to take. What should we of the West do about them? These thousands of young people still marching past me, clapping now with a terrifying rhythm? Kill them? This was the answer the Nazis had offered. Let them win by default? Much as I loved and respected the WEC and its training college, it had never once sent a man behind the Iron Curtain. What should we do then? What should I do? The Bible in my lap lay open, pages ruffling in the morning breeze. I put down my hand to hold them still and found that I was looking at the book of Revelation. My fingers were resting on the page almost as though they were pointing. Awake, said the verse at my fingertips, and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. Suddenly I realized that I was seeing the words through a blur of t tears. Could it be that God was speaking them to me right now, telling me, that my life work was here behind the Iron Curtain, where his remnant church was struggling for its life? Was I to have some part in strengthening the pre this precious thing that remained? But that was ridiculous. How could I? As far as I knew, back then in 1955, there was not a single missionary working in this largest of all mission fields. What could I, one person, without funds, organization do against an overwhelming force like the one passing in front of me now. Next time, Chapter 8, The Cup of Suffering.